Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, and thanks for downloading Money Talks, The Economist's weekly finance and economics podcast. Coming up, as the oil price rises, we discuss the return of geopolitical tension to the market. The recent uh, shake-up in Saudi Arabia, the rising tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran over Yemen, over the Lebanon, these are beginning to factor back into the oil market and are really one of the main reasons, I think, why oil is more or less double the level that it was back in the beginning of 2016. And we welcome Michael Lewis, author of The Big Short, into the studio. We talk about his new book and who we think should play the lead characters if... It's made into a film. So my dream casting is Christian Bale and Sasha Baron Cohen. I want I, I want a comedian in the room because, as you said, they're laughing all the time. Yeah. A comedian will bring that to life by the by. I'm Philip Coggan, the Buttonwood columnist. And first on our agenda today is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Only three days into his presidency, Mr. Trump withdrew from the trade deal, as he'd promised to do on the campaign trail before his election. On trade, I am going to issue our notification of intent to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a potential disaster for our country. Instead, we will negotiate fair bilateral trade deals that bring jobs and industry back onto American shores. Nevertheless, the 11 other countries involved have gone ahead and formed an agreement without America. Samir Keynes has been following the story. So the first thing to say is that this thing is not signed, sealed, delivered. They've got an agreement in principle. They renamed it the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, kind of an eye-rollingly annoying acronym, CPTPP. What they've done is they've um, agreed to suspend some of the provisions in the original, but there are some areas where they haven't quite agreed amongst all of themselves yet. And so those hopefully will be hammered out at some point in the first quarter of next year. And what's the idea behind the CPTPP? Is it just a a free trade zone or is it more involved, more like the EU? The CPTPP is very much a 21st century trade deal. There is some tariff liberalisation, but really the bulk of this agreement is about setting global standards for world trade. So things like rules on state-owned enterprises, intellectual property protection, that sort of thing. So what's happened with this CPTPP is that some of the rules in the original TPP have been suspended. So essentially, America won't get the benefits of that greater extended intellectual property provision. And the other countries are hoping to leave those in as a kind of carrot to lure the Americans back should they want to join in future. China wasn't in the original deal. Is there scope for China to join this new arrangement? The original theory of the deal was that what America would do would be to create this trade block so large that eventually China would just have to get with the program. It would have to sign up to these higher rules and higher standards if it wanted to get good access. It doesn't look 
likely that China is going to join anytime soon. That said, some economists are hoping that other Asian countries might join and actually boost the economic advantages of the deal. Um, so with the move from TPP 12 to the CPTPP with only 11 members, um, they've estimated that the boost to global GDP is only around a quarter of what the original would have been. But if you get these five extra Asian countries to join, then you could get even greater benefits than the original. Now, under Trump, America wants to pursue a bilateral policy of doing trade deals with other countries, presumably because its muscle is greater when it's acting on its own. But if these other 11 countries are banded together, won't that make it more difficult for America to strike its own deals with those 11? My impression is that the other countries haven't been super excited about the prospect of bilaterals with Trump. But I think this move from multilateralism to this bilateralism kind of misunderstands um, the point of 21st century trade deals. So if the CPTPP is all about setting rules, it doesn't really make sense to have 11 different sets of rules. It makes sense to have one set of rules so that businesses know what they're doing. And so really, with rule setting rather than tariff liberalization, it's even more the case that you've got benefits from being in a bigger set of countries doing deals. Thank you, Samaya. So do you think that Mr. Trump was right to pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership? Can you actually pronounce CPTPP? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us by radio at economist.com. The price of oil has climbed around 20% in recent weeks, owing largely to the return of geopolitical tensions. On November the 30th, the International Oil Consortium, OPEC, will meet with other non-OPEC producers. They intend to discuss output. So what can we expect? Henry Trix, our energy editor, is here and he joins me now. So, Henry, why is geopolitical risk coming back into the oil market? Well, it's been a uh, strange two years in which, although... All sorts of things have been taking place in, in the world. You've had big shakeups in governance in Saudi Arabia. You've had Venezuela, which has the world's biggest oil reserves, um, going through a sort of economic meltdown. You've had you know, the election of Donald Trump and, uh, and all sorts of, um, of interesting events. And they've had almost no impact on the oil market. The oil market has been determined since, the, um, since it fell into the depths of despair in at the beginning of 2016 by oversupply by the fact that you know shale oil has been ramping up in the United States and this has overwhelmed the markets and caused a huge rise in the inventories well now that the market is coming back to a uh, a sense of normality just at a time when geopolitical risks especially in the middle east are beginning to rise so uh, the recent uh, shake up in saudi arabia the rising tensions between saudi arabia and iran over yemen over the lebanon these are beginning to factor back into the oil market and are really one of the main reasons i think why oil is is now up at 62 dollars a barrel or 63 dollars a barrel more or less double the level that it was back in the beginning of 2016. Let's focus on that Saudi Arabian angle. There's been a lot going on. Of course, Prince Mohammed bin Salman wants to float Aramco. Uh, he's just had several members of the royal family arrested. How does it all play out? Is it a sign that Saudi Arabia is reforming and modernizing? Or is it a sign potentially that it might be descending into a form of uh, chaos in the medium term, which would push oil up a lot higher. 
it's nerve, it's unsettling. It's a bit nerve-wracking. There is clearly an argument. There are some people, um, especially those within Saudi Arabia, who are quite excited by what um, Mohammed bin Salman is doing because it seems to be a way of consolidating his reform programs, opening up new space for the young in Saudi Arabia, and putting potentially behind bars, people who are considered to be the backbone of a very crony-like economy. So domestically in Saudi Arabia, I think there's quite a lot of excitement about what the crown prince has been doing. Outside, people tend to view it differently. They see a um, somewhat hot-headed prince who since he um, began to ascend in the in the hierarchy um, last year, has been taking on an extraordinary workload. You know, he's launched a war in Yemen. He's raised tensions with Iran. He's talked about um, uh, privatizing part of Aramco. And there is a sense that with these latest detentions, he may have gone too far. So there is a sense within the oil market that this is somewhat precarious. Yes, the irony is that 10 years ago, the financial system was brought low by the initials MBS, mortgage-backed securities, and it could be so again. The other big issue for the oil market, as you mentioned, about excessive supply is, is fracking and the US shale market. And the Saudis did want at some point to drive down the price low enough to push those um, oil producers out of business. What's been the actual result? Well, the result has been a resilience in the American shale oil industry that's caught everyone by surprise. I mean, they were able to continue producing oil um, at increasing quantities. And this was largely because they were supported by an extremely liquid capital market. The equity markets and the bond markets were pouring money into the shale industry, even when it wasn't necessarily profitable to do so. Recently, i.e. since the summer, more or less, that sort of sense of buoyancy in the shale market has ebbed somewhat. And there is a sense that these companies have to start thinking more about profitability rather than production. They can't just keep on ramping up um, output willy-nilly. But in a sense, we're still in the same cycle within the oil market that we've been um, for quite a long time now, in the sense that if OPEC does continue to cut back on oil production and prices do rise further beyond $60 a barrel, then these shale guys, they can make money at $60 a barrel. They're already, again, hedging quite aggressively their production for next year. So I think the chances are that they will continue to raise output and that will keep a steadying hand on on the oil markets. Henry Tricks, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. And finally, we welcome Michael Lewis into The Economist Studios. Michael is the author of a number of best-selling books, including Liar's Poker and The Big Short. And now he's written a new one, The Undoing Project, the tale of two Israelis who created behavioural economics. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. What's interesting to me is that this is a different sort of book to your others. It's more of an intellectual journey. It doesn't have the big sport or the high finance elements of your other books. So what attracted you to the story? So it rhymed a bit with some of my other books, but you're right. It's very different. What attracted me to it was this relationship, I had the two characters and the relationships. And the two characters, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky, tell me about them. So Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for economics, even though he would tell you he knew very little economics. He got it for the effect their psychological research had on economics. It's essentially 
enabled the creation of behavioral economics. Kahneman and Tversky were very different people. Tversky was a logician uh, who happened to find his way into psychology. And Kahneman was child of the Holocaust, someone who was kind of a font of insight into human nature. And these two people collided. And I think basically what happened was Kahneman had all these ideas about what made people tick or the odd things people did. And Tversky found a way to formalize the ideas in a way that was palatable to really smart intellectuals. And you've talked about it as a sort of love affair between the two. They're very different characters. And perhaps without each other, they would never have reached the prominence that they've attained. There was something magical that happened when the two of them were together. And the way Kahneman describes a collaboration is a lot like an improv comedy where the whole foundation of it was uncritical acceptance of the other. As he said to me once, when one of us said something, the other didn't ask if it was true. They asked, what might it be true of? (laughs) So they were always building on each other's thoughts. Because you mentioned in the book that often people outside could hear laughter coming from inside the rooms when they were collaborating. Let's talk about what they found. So the assumption that economists traditionally made was that people were rational. But they found a whole bunch of effects in the way that we think of problems that mean that we're not rational in that sense. Take, for example, uh, loss aversion is is a good one, right? Sure. I think, and no economist would say they thought people were exactly rational, but I think they thought that the irrationalities were kind of random and canceled each other out in the marketplace. And what Kahneman and Tversky were up to were showing how people were systematically irrational, that everybody kind of made the same kind of mistake or had the same kind of tilt in their mind. And when they were working on prospect theory, which is for which they end up winning the Nobel Prize, one of the insights they have is that if you give people a gamble, when They're in the casino and they've won a bit and they've got money in their pocket. They are much more risk averse facing future gambles than if they're in their casino and they've lost some and they're trying to kind of get back to even. Mm. That people operating in the domain of losses who are thinking of themselves in the domain of losses uh, are risk loving and people in the domain of gains are risk averse. And you think of uh, Nick Leeson, for example, who was at Bearings, lost a lot of money trading in the futures market and then lost even more and bankrupted the bank trying to get it back. Every person who has ever run a Wall Street trading floor, when they're working with new traders, they look for these two, these two vices. One is not, not, um, not letting your gains run, being too conservative when you're up are digging a bigger hole when you're down, not cutting your losses. It's like the first rookie mistake for a trader is not cutting their losses. I mean, one of their books is called Choices, Values, Frames, and framing the question is very important, isn't it? Hmm. I mean, one of the things, I think the things that just drops out of all their work is people don't, when they're making decisions, they don't decide between things. They decide between descriptions of things. And if you change the description without changing the underlying decision, you can change the person's decision. So they went to doctors and they told them they had patients that had terminal cancer, at best seven years to live, but there was an experimental procedure that could save their lives. Problem is that this, it was a surgery and there was a chance the person would die on the operating table. And doctors who were told that there was a 90% chance of survival of the surgery were almost twice as likely to perform the surgery as doctors who were told there was a 10% mm-hmm. chance of death from the surgery. So doctors, professionals who have the thing framed as one way, as a loss, behave differently than people who have it framed another way. And of course, this is adapted by another person who sort of features in your books in one way, Richard Thaler, who's in this book and in the film, The Big Short, into the nudge theory that 
No, uh, a little, uh, a little piece of trivia for you that yeah. I don't know has ever come public is the part Richard Thaler plays in The Big Short with Selena Gomez in a, in a casino was first offered to Danny Kahneman, uh-huh. and he turned it down. But yes, Thaler is a, in his youth is dissatisfied with his field. And he is already keeping a list of things he calls anomalies, things people do, human beings do, that economic theory has problems with. Like, for example, he he demonstrates that people are less happy having more choices than fewer choices. Or people don't ignore a sunk cost. If they buy tickets to a football game and then decide they don't want to go to the football game, the mere fact they bought the tickets, even though it gives them displeasure to go, (laughs) might cause them to go to the game. But he doesn't know what to do with these anomalies. And he comes across Kahneman Tversky's work. And as he says, from my point of view, they had one idea. And the one idea was systematic irrationality, that people could be systematically wrong. And And he plugged that in to all the problems he was trying to resolve and started to write a new kind of economics and they've spawned a field. And people can argue, I think there are arguments about just how much behavioral economics has contributed to the world. It is the still kind of the hot place in academia, I think, for a young economist. But there's still arguments about mm. how useful it is. And one argument that people make is that it doesn't provide you with testable predictions, right? So if you say, go to a behavioral economist and say, you know, what's unemployment going to be or inflation going to be or any of these questions that we all have to answer. Yeah. They can't really help you with the answer, they, can There they? are a bunch of things they can't help you with. They can help you with things, you know, what Thaler has ended up doing is spending a lot of time with government policy, framing decisions for the population. I mean, the big one is in public pensions. It started with corporate pensions, that if you give, give employees a form that says they have to opt into saving, that they're much less likely to save than if you give them a form that says they have to opt out. So he's had a big, big effect on savings rates in corporations and in, with government employees. There are limits to what it's been able to do. But from my point of view, writing the story of Kahneman Tversky, behavioral economics was just one outtake. They touched so many disciplines because any place anybody was making decisions uh, had to kind of pay attention to their work. So field of medicine, evidence-based medicine starts to gain steam in the 1970s. The idea that doctors shouldn't be rendering diagnoses using just their gut, that there should be data involved. So they've touched lots of areas of, of human existence. And the economics field is just the one for which a Nobel Prize is given. So that gets a lot of attention. Now, I don't know whether this one's going to be turned into a film. I was quite surprised the big short made it into a film. It was, I thought it was a great film, funny enough. Any plans for that? Or if not, what else are you looking at next? Well, I'm writing other things. I don't write the movies. The movies, I sell the books, and it, what happens to them happens to them. And we shall see. The two parts of Amos and Danny, I'll make a prediction. I won't make many predictions. One or maybe both of them will be, receive Oscar nominations. Hmm. The, the characters are so good. Yeah, it could be Bradley Whitford and to, uh, Richard Schiff from um, The West Wing. In the younger years, I could see them as the, as the two, possibly. So my dream casting, yeah. this is going to sound odd, is Christian Bale and Sasha Baron Cohen. Oh, right. I want, I, I want a comedian yeah. in the room because, as you said, they're laughing all the time. Yeah. What are they laughing about? They're laughing about these little things they discover about people. A comedian will bring that to life by the by. And I think he'd, be, he'd make a wonderful Danny Kahneman. Well, good luck with that. So the book is The Undoing Project, A True Story by Michael Lewis. Michael, thanks very much for coming. Thank you, Philip. Good to see you. Well, that's it for this week's Money Talks. Don't forget, you can pick up a copy of the paper if you'd like to hear more or subscribe. Just head to subscriptions.economist.com. I'm Philip Coggan. 
In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.